Um, there are chapters 16, 20, 28, 29, and 31. And if you uh, flip to page 6 on your bulletins, you can find it there as well. Proverbs 16. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. Proverbs 20. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. Proverbs 28. To show partiality is not good, but for a piece of bread a man will do wrong. Proverbs 29. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. By justice, a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts tears it down. Proverbs 31. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Buenos días. La lectura de hoy viene del libro de los proverbios y van a ser seis proverbios. Las pesas y las balanzas justas son del Señor. Todas las medidas son hechura suya. Nunca digas, me vengaré de este, de ese daño. Confía en el Señor y Él actuará por ti. No es correcto mostrarse parcial con nadie. Hay quienes pecan hasta por un mendrugo de pan. Cuando los justos prosperan, el pueblo se alegra. Cuando los impíos gobiernan, el pueblo gime. Con justicia el Rey da estabilidad al país. Cuando lo abruma con tributos, lo destruye. Levanta la voz por los que no tienen voz. Defiende los derechos de los desposeídos. Levanta la voz y hazle justicia. Defiende a los pobres y necesitados. Thank you, Daniel and Chris. We have a special treat today as we have a guest preacher, uh, Pastor Scott Seaton, who's joined here today uh, with his wife. And uh, I have been looking forward to this for a long time, looking for some opportunity uh, to invite this brother to come and preach in uh, our uh, worship service, just because I personally have been so blessed by him and have been looking forward to a chance to have him bless you as well. Uh, Scott has been a dear friend and partner in ministry, uh, planted Emmanuel Presbyterian Church. How many years ago now? Seven. Seven years. Yeah, church, we, we never, I mean, people ask me how old our church is. I never know either. Uh, it's sort of a typical thing. Um, a, a, a joy to watch Emmanuel Prez in Arlington grow as a church that's intentionally rooted in Arlington as we are trying to be intentionally rooted here in this neighborhood. So a lot of affinity, uh, a lot of uh, like-mindedness, a lot of love. Uh, have always appreciated uh, this brother's support of me personally. Personally, anytime I wanted to bounce off ideas or get some advice in the early days of our startup was always available and always generous with his time and his uh, wisdom. And so it's a pleasure to be able to have you come preach. Uh, why don't you join me up here, Scott? We'd love to pray for you. All right, let's pray together. 
God, thank you so much uh, for the ways that you have distributed your gifts to your body generously, and we're going to be beneficiaries of that reality as you pour out your spirit through this brother's gifts, but also his soul, his faith, uh, the insight you've given him into this word, and so I pray that you would uh, pour out your spirit upon my brother Scott, uh, but through him that you would bless us, help us to hear from you your word, uh, help us to have open hearts and minds, Jesus, help us to see you and love you and worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we put our hands together and welcome Scott Seaton? Hey, it is uh, really a delight to be here. Thank you, Duke, for those uh, kind words. I have uh, loved Duke as a brother ever since I got to know him years ago for his heart for the community, for the heart for uh, the gospel, uh, just all the different ways that he uh, communicates uh, the good news of what Jesus has done for us and the totality of our relationship with him. Uh, I have learned far more from my brother Duke uh, than I have uh, at all begun to share with him, I, I assure you that. Uh, this has been a delight to be be here worshiping with you guys. Uh, this, the, I tell you, the worship, uh, let me just, can I give you guys a round of applause for all those who uh, led us in worship here today. You guys are awesome. Uh, I don't know if you know, but Emmanuel is actually in the process of our own worship search. Uh, as you guys look for a building, we're actually looking for a search direct, a search uh, uh, a worship director. And I just want to announce today that that search is over. Uh, so if you want to hear your team again, come to Arlington where they're going to be worshiping uh, there because it was awesome. You guys come with us anytime. It was fantastic. Uh, you also you're going to be going. We're going to be going through the same book, Paul Miller's Loving Life, uh, in the fall here. So man, we just you know we'll just be like brothers and sisters. It'd be great. You join us and you know all about us. But we really do share a lot of the same affinities, Emmanuel and uh, Grace Meridian Hill, in, in terms of wanting to be a church that is embedded into the community. And the community is a little bit different because of the presence of God's people, being God's people made in God's image, uh, doing the kinds of things that God's people are supposed to be about doing. Uh, everything I've heard about your church is you're a church that loves the gospel, that loves grace, to see not just how that begins a relationship with Jesus, but actually transforms our relationships with our spouses, with our neighbors, with people across the street that we don't even know, with people who are in different strata from us uh, of income or ethnicity or background or whatever it is, and how the gospel actually transforms a community. And what God does is he puts a people into his community just like you that you are literally Jesus's hands and his feet in Meridian Hill. It's an astonishing thing to think what God has called you to do and to be. It's an overwhelming thing that frankly you cannot do without the gospel enabling you to do that for us and through us. And so that's what I like to talk a little bit about here and I wanted, I was wondering about what to share uh, this morning and I wanted to share as I kind of thought about it, you know, as a guest preacher you actually get to kind of go to the well and think, hey, I'm going to pull out the sermon that, you know, uh, people kind of came up and gave me some pats on the back about or whatever and I said, I said I'm not going to do that this time, uh, I, I'll do that, but um, instead I wanted to, to be able to share some things that actually are on my heart uh, deeply and, and the things I just shared frankly with uh, the folks at Emmanuel last week and so this is even what our church is, is wrestling with and talking about the very things that Duke was just talking about a few minutes ago. 
And then we're actually in a series on Proverbs, and I'll set this up this way. Uh, last week, I, my wife and I drove up to upstate New York to pick up my son, our son, from uh, camp there. And we uh, drove necessarily through the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And when we got there, we uh, were on their highways, and we noticed that there, they had additional highway signs that were sort of different from all the traffic signs you normally see. These were sort of special yellow signs on the side of the road that said things like, maintain safe distance. Uh, good advice, you know, just sort of tips for driving. You know, maintain safe distance, um, stay alert, don't move to Philadelphia. You know, good, good sound advice uh, for your stay there in Pennsylvania. And Proverbs are a lot like that. Sort of sound wisdom for how to manage your stay here on this earth. But if they're only that, if whenever you pick up the book of Proverbs and you say, okay, here's some sound maxims for life, you know, some good advice, some good tips, um, if it's only that, then they're really no different from those signs in Pennsylvania. There's no gospel there. It's no good news. It's simply good advice. Okay? And that's the way a lot of people look at the book of Proverbs, just some tips. But they're far, far, far more than that. And frankly, you know, when you actually do look at the book of Proverbs, you know, where is Jesus in all this? It just seems he's not mentioned. He's, there's no sort of direct allusions. You kind of wonder, how is this connecting with the good news of grace that we all uh, want to tap into? And it's this, is that Proverbs itself actually points us to the source of wisdom. Okay? Who and what gave us wisdom, who is wisdom itself, and who, actually, who wisdom actually came and lived among us in the person of Jesus. And all the book of Proverbs actually points ahead, looks ahead, it tells us, it does give us good advice, but it gives us more than that. It shows us what it's truly to be human and to be able to reflect the image of God in each one of us. Okay? And today I want to look at the topic of justice. Even Duke mentioned earlier about how you as a church want to be a, a people who are seeking justice in this community. But if you look around, you know, our signs of justice, these signs of justice that we're supposed to be pointing to, they're really hard to read, aren't they? They're kind of confusing or they're misspelled, misplaced. Just let you know, at 3 o'clock this morning, just a few hours ago, I was, I was out on the phone to, uh, to some folks in South Africa. We have some members there who are uh, ministering uh, among the poor and the needy, uh, many, most of whom who've been uh, just hurt by decades of neglect and, and oppression uh, during the, the years of apartheid. And they're called to serve among those folks. And, and one of our members uh, joined them uh, for a few weeks just to serve along with them, particularly in some schools. And uh, yesterday she broke her ankle severely. Uh, they were even wondering if they might have to possibly amputate. It was that bad. And I wanted to call this morning uh, to, to just to, to pray with her over the phone, to console her in the best way I can from across the other side of the planet as she's there in the, in the hospital. Good news, the surgery did go well and they're very encouraged by it. And I was very grateful for the skilled surgeons in the hospital that she was in. But it made me think about after the surgery, I was like, well, what if, what if what if, she, what if Eileen didn't have a U.S. passport? If she didn't have insurance, what kind of access to health care would she have, you know, in a place like South Africa? And it made me wonder about sort of the scales of justice and how things and the things of this world are unequally distributed. Or closer to home, 
thinking about what is it, what do those signs of justice look like in the U.S., as even uh, Duke was alluding to, with, uh, for example, the reports of these traffic stops that, un that seem to unjustly target African Americans. I don't know if you know, but a few years ago, the New Jersey Attorney's General's Office released a report saying that black motorists represented 13% of drivers in New Jersey, but about 40% of traffic stops. Why the incredible disparity, right? And the report went on to say that minorities were subjected to heightened scrutiny and more probing investigative tactics that lead to more arrests that are then used to justify those same tax tactics. On the front cover of today's post, there's a, there's a, a, a long article that, that talks about how unarmed black men are seven times more likely than whites to die by gunfire uh, from police. Why the disparity? Recently in Cincinnati, a white campus police officer uh, was uh, accused of murder, charged with murder for shooting an unarmed uh, black man uh, after a routine traffic stop that just escalated beyond reason. How did that happen? And in Texas, Sarah Bland was found dead in her jail cell after three days earlier being pulled over for, as you, if you listen to the video, for a routine, a routine traffic stop. On, she was pulled over, if you've seen it, for failing, as the officer said, failing to signal during the lane change. And if you look at the, the traffic on the, on the road there, there's hardly any traffic. There was, there was hardly a reason to even use her turn signal. And she's, um, she was pulled over, and things escalated when the white officer asked her to put, her, put out her cigarette, ordered her out of the car, and threatened to tase her. And it just got out of hand. Now, I have tremendous respect for any officer and any of you that would be involved in situations like that. That are, um, that are trying to, to handle a tense situation and trying to de-escalate things from getting out of hand. But clearly, it was hard, as you watch the video, it's just hard not to see an abuse of authority here. These are all signs of justice that are they're just sort of mismarked or clear, unclear to read as they sort of point in different directions. And in a world so desperately in need of justice, I believe this 3,000-year-old book of Proverbs is incredibly relevant and incredibly timely because the truths and the person behind Proverbs is timeless. It's timeless. So today I want to look at the call of justice, I want to look at the compassion of justice, and I want to look at the certainty of justice. Okay? Well, let's begin with the call of justice. All right, so justice is the quality of being fair and reasonable. And in society, it's a fair application of the law and the use of power. We all want to live in a place like that, don't we, right? But when power and authority are used to favor one group over another, or when power and authority are used to mistreat one group over another, there's something inside of us that screams, that is not right. That is unfair. That reaction is deep and it's visceral. It ought not to be that way. Well, where does that sense of oughtness come from? Why does it strike us so deeply? Proverbs 16 that we looked at, verse 11 says, A just balance and scale are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. 
So in the marketplace in the ancient world and today, a merchant would take a, would use a balance with weights, uh, with plates on it, and he would put uh, a weight on one side that in our economy would represent a pound, and then he'd measure out, you know, a pound of meat or spices or whatever, and if that was an accurate, a just weight, then you would be able to buy a, an equal amount of that uh, product of meat or spice or whatever it is. But an unjust merchant might put a weight on there that's maybe nine-tenths of a pound and, and charge you for the full pound. Right? So a, it's just when a merchant uses honest balances and honest weights. But what's interesting in that verse in Proverbs 16 is that it says that that sense of justice is what? It's the Lord's. Okay? It's the Lord's. In other words, the Lord owns justice and he shares it with us. He distributes it with us. To measure with, the weights are properly labeled as one pound. It's not just a, a man-made convention, but it's the Lord's. In other words, justice itself comes from somewhere. We didn't just make it up. It's not just our convention just to, to, to make life go a little bit more easily for us. It is the Lord's. And so Isaiah chapter 30 says, the Lord is a God of justice. He is a God of justice. He doesn't simply act justly. He is. It is in his nature, in his being, in his character to be so. He is just. He is fair and he is reasonable. And the scales which he weighs our hearts are just, are just. Now here's the amazing thing. Being made in his image, that you and I are image bearers, means that God shares that divine sense of justice with us. It's imprinted in you. Every person who's ever lived, Christian or not, any time or space or culture, taps into that sense of justice. And when God made us, he stepped back and looked at his handiwork and he admired it and he t declared it good. Hebrew word is tob. He said, in fact, it was very good. He looked at us and said, that is good. That is good. Now, why did he say that? He said it was good because it was an accurate, because it was an accurate reflection of his character, including his justice. And now, even though that we live in a broken and fallen and unjust world, we still have that sense, that divine sense, that divine imprint of justice embedded into us. And so Proverbs 28 says that showing partiality is not good. It is not tob. It's not good. It's the same word. Partiality is not good because it misrepresents the one that we bear image to. Now, in Hebrew, the word partiality literally means to show face. Okay? You're showing a favorable face or an unfavorable face to one person or a not another. To be partial, to show face, is to, to show favoritism. That's why, of course, Lady Justice is typically shown, what, with a, with a blindfold on. And the idea there is that she's supposed to weigh the merits of an issue without looking at the person's ethnicity, their wealth, their power, their race, or whatever. She's to, she's to be impartial in how she acts justly. Okay? Impartially is showing face. It's like lifting the veil. And so we can, show we can show partiality by wealth, by looking at someone's wealth, making a decision based on that, or their power, or their race, among many other things. For example, wealth. When you're around a wealthy person, 
Isn't that tempting just to show deference in some way? To say somehow that person maybe just should be treated a little bit more fairly or generously than someone else. You give greater attention, maybe you're a server in a restaurant, you know that that person's wealthy and you give them a little better service, right? Hoping for that tip or something in return. Showing partiality because of wealth. That's a temptation anywhere and it's a temptation for the church. And so in the book of James in the New Testament, we are expressly told this. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? God is impartial, so we shouldn't be either. Our impartiality is reflecting correctly the divine image in us. Or secondly, power. Arlington County has one of the best jails in the country or the world. Something we like to boast about. You know. It's actually, well, I've, 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 it's been so, it's so good actually that uh, we've taken a tour one time as a church to to uh, talk with the people there as we interacted about well, what does justice look like in our community? And just to be able to spark a conversation in our church to say what what do we learn? What do we what would we want to engage with? What how can we help? What would we want to critique if there was anything in our own jail in Arlington County? It's, it's a remarkable philosophy. I won't go into all of it. I didn't even know really all the philosophies of jails, but there are. And uh, in, in particularly in Arlington County, they uh, have a, a philosophy that really upholds the dignity of both the officers that are in, in charge of the place as well as the inmates. And it's been studied by people all over the country, including all over the world. People, there's, a, there's even now a, a friend of mine who works there, a, a certain Middle Eastern country that is not exactly known for meeting out justice is actually studying Arlington County Jail in terms of how they do jail. It was really interesting. But that's why it was so surprising for me to learn last week that there was a, uh, a possible mistreatment of deaf inmates and there's actual a, a Department of Justice investigation going on of the Arlington County Jail. Uh, there was an Ethiopian immigrant who was deaf and has limited English and was arrested at Reagan Airport on February 2nd. And because, uh, because of his circumstances, he was denied an interpreter and put in the jail without exactly knowing why. Now, I don't know the details of the case. I haven't met with anybody there about it. But it's not hard to imagine that this epitome of weakness, right? Someone who's deaf, who's homeless, who's an immigrant, might not have the same access to the means of justice that you and I might have. And if you, the fact that you can speak English and get along in this culture, the fact that you are a resident here, and if you are a citizen, just those basic things means that you have certain access to the means of justice that others might not. Okay? So you're, we, it's easy to show partiality just on simple things of power like the ability to speak English. Or ethnicity. Countless studies have shown a racial bias in employment. There's a study in 2003 where they mailed thousands of resumes to employers with job, job openings. These employers had uh, posted job openings. And they measured which of these resumes were selected back 
for callbacks, for a, a follow-up interview. And they sent the identical resume to all these different employers who had posted uh, job openings, except with this one difference. The, uh, they randomly used stereotypically African-American names, such as Jamal, on some, and stereotypically white names, like Brendan, on others. Right? The identical resume was roughly 50% more likely to result in a callback for an interview if it had a white name. Well, that shows partiality. And the ultimate reason that showing face, that showing partiality for wealth, power, ethnicity, whatever it be, is not good, is not tobe, is why? Because it misrepresents the one that we bear image to. It misrepresents the sign that we are to be pointing all of creation to our creator. It's a misrepresentation of who God is. It's saying God is like that when he's not. Okay? Look at Jesus instead. This perfect image of God the Father. Who didn't show partiality based on wealth or power or race. Wealth. He lived as a peasant. He hung out with the poor. He owned nothing but a cloak. Power. On his way to heal the dying son of a wealthy, powerful synagogue official, he stopped for an elderly woman who had spent 12 years uh, as um, uh, bleeding and therefore was, uh, and spent all her money on doctors. And she was considered not only poor, but powerless and a social outcast. People literally wouldn't touch her. And yet Jesus takes all the time to hear her whole story, the text says. To hear her story. And, so that, and then heal her physically so that she's not only physically healed, but she's emotionally healed and she's restored to community. A complete healing. So Jesus doesn't show partiality to someone of power. Or ethnicity. Jews were taught to despise Samaritans, people of another race. But instead of avoiding them, Jesus went out of his way, deliberately walking in into Samaria to talk with them, and he used them as what? Heroes in the parables, like the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay. So Jesus doesn't show partiality. If you want to see justice, the best example, the best sign that we have is Jesus himself, an accurate sign. Colossians says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And when Jesus' love gets a hold of us, when we really begin to get it, we begin to see as Jesus sees. And you begin to see this community right outside your doorstep. You begin to see the people in this room differently. Not as you normally see them, but in the way that Jesus sees them. Now, we still see distinctions, of course, right? I, you're an African-American. You're white, right? You're Asian. Right? And so there's... The distinctions exist in this room, in this community, and there's something to be celebrated, but they cease to have a price tag, a value that affects us. Right? So, for example, Peter, one of the disciples, one of the followers of Jesus, he was a zealous Jew who loved Jews and hated Gentiles, and yet, in the book of Acts, he accepts a Roman centurion, and he says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. That God shows no face. And in the book of Romans, Paul, who was also a zealous Jew, 
said that no one has an ethnic or religious advantage when standing before God's justice. Why? Because God shows no partiality. God doesn't show face. Now, how do you explain this incredible transformation when you, when you think about how in the world can I go out there and be like that? You know, how can I not be so taken in? How can I not show face when it's, when it's in all our hearts to do that? What explains the, the radical transformation of guys like Peter and Paul? It's one thing. They got that Jesus gave his life for all equally. That there wasn't some sort of uh, race card or wealth card or power card that they could play to get a certain advantage or leverage with Jesus. He died for all equally. And so no one has a, a claim or, or a stake and an, 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 an interest in Jesus' love that's any greater than the others. That he loves us all. It's an equal playing field. Grace just levels the playing field. And if, he, if it, that's how Jesus looks at us, then, then we ought to look at others the same way. And the degree that you are showing partiality, that your price tag is somehow different because of the color of their skin or what's in their checkbook, right? Jesus' love has yet to get a hold of you. So the call of justice, it's inside of us. It comes from somewhere. All right, secondly, the compassion of justice. The Bible tells us that to treat, to rich, uh, to treat rich and poor alike and not to show partiality to others. Right? But the reality is that the rich and the resourced typically have access to means of justice. And those who are poor and weak are the most likely the victims of injustice. They lack access the access to resources to be able to defend themselves. And so the Bible countlessly gives us verses like this in Proverbs 31, to be mindful of the poor and the weak, and to ensure that they're treated justly. Proverbs 31 says, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And we are to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Defend the poor and the needy. This verse in the last couple of weeks was on my mind as I watched the, the video of the doctor in between bites of salad and sips of wine just kind of casually talked about how the parts of an aborted baby would be worth maybe $30 or $100. Maybe you've seen the videos. It's gone viral. And many have been troubled, understandably, by the apparent sale of body parts. Now, whether or not that's happening, and whatever you think of the larger issue, the most troubling part in watching that was how the doctor devalued a silent, defenseless life. And every human life, rich or poor, white, black, Asian, Latino, young or old, powerful or weak, every single human life is made in the image of God. It is of incalculable worth, dignity, and that is why God calls us to speak for those who cannot speak and defend the rights of the poor and needy. And when we do that, we're actually bearing image, we're being assigned, pointing to the God of justice. So I want to encourage you, where in your life are you like a sign? Where are you speaking up for the poor and the needy? I encourage all of us should have a, a, a way to do that, not only as a church, but as individuals. And so I, I was encouraged, for example, to hear how uh, your church is involved in the boys and girls mentoring at the Columbia Heights uh, Rec Recreational Center. 
I don't encourage you. That's not only just a, a good thing to help mentor kids and, and help to uh, do, provide some tutoring, but what it's saying ultimately is that you matter. You matter. You are of such valuable, uh, you are of such value to your creator that you, have, you are as valuable as the mayor of this city, the people in the highest uh, positions of power in this country. You matter equally. Okay? And so when you tutor somebody who might be overlooked by the means of education, you're actually, that's what you're saying ultimately. It's, it's a big thing. Or to be involved in, as you are as a church, in the Affordable Housing Task Force. That's actually a justice issue. As the, uh, uh, to, to, say that, to, to say that we aren't showing partiality just to those who are the wealthiest, but actually to be able to provide housing for, for those who serve us, whether in the dry cleaners or, or the uh, firefighter, or the police, uh, police station, or, or teachers. To be able to have affordable housing just like anybody else would in this community. It's actually a justice issue. Or the Columbia Heights community that you're going to be a part of. What that's saying is that you are a part of the fabric of community, of this community. Such that my hope would be is that as, as, as the, the, the watching world sees you and how you interact with one another, how, what they feel from you, what they sense from you, that they, they sense somehow the way that you treat one another and the way that you treat this community is just a little bit different. They can't put their finger on it. And they, maybe they feel it more than know it. But they feel like, ah, this, is, this comes from somewhere and it points to something. And it points to something. Justice is compassionate. Okay? And that people are to be treated fairly and equitably, including those most likely to be run over or taken advantage of. And the result is what? Human flourishing. It's uh, the presence of shalom right here, even in Columbia Heights. Proverbs 29 says, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. By justice, a king builds up the land. By justice, Jesus, who is our true and better king, the king that Proverbs points ultimately to and looks ahead to, he is building up the land even now. And when you are acting justly, when those people increase, it is good for all. You are actually contributing and building up shalom, a place of wholeness and goodness, okay? prosperity. You're a pointer to the kingdom. Actually, like a, a preview of coming attractions, right? You know, the, the, you watch the movies, uh, you go to, to watch a movie and you see, I always like, like watching the previews of the movies that come just to get a little foretaste of that. Well, this community is like a preview of coming attractions of the kingdom to come right here in Columbia Heights. Okay. All right, the call of justice, uh, the um, compassion of justice, the certainty of justice. The certainty of justice. That seems like a gross exaggeration, doesn't it? The certainty of justice. Wrongs aren't always corrected. People literally get away with murder. So how can you say that justice is certain? And when justice escapes us, what? It's very tempting to want to take justice into our own hands and to physically harm the wrongdoer or to maliciously gossip about them behind their back and ruin their reputation, in essence, kill their reputation. It's, a, it's, an, it's an act of murder without actually taking their life. But God gives the power of the sword to the state, not the individuals. We are to work for justice on the one hand, but not take justice into our own hands.
vengeance itself can kill us. During the Second World War, the uh, U.S. submarine Tang was off the coast of Japan and uh, during the uh, night it, it rose up to uh, surface depth and uh, uh, sent off, uh, had in its sights had a, a large Japanese convoy that, uh, and it shot off uh, seven torpedoes and uh, which all found their mark. But the eighth one, the last one, veered off and something went wrong and with the, uh, uh, with, the, with the torpedo and actually circled back onto the submarine itself. And before the, before the, uh, the tank could actually surface, the, uh, the torpedo hit the own, its own sub and the sub uh, instantly sank to the bottom of the ocean. And that's what vengeance does to us. When we act in wrath, things go off course. People actually get hurt that don't need to be hurt. Or we, uh, ultimately we even hurt ourselves through gossip and bitterness uh, and, uh, and living a lifetime of bitterness. It just tears us up itself. And so we need to understand the power of forgiveness. That is what? That is actually based on the certainty of justice. The power of forgiveness in our own hearts is based on the certainty of justice. Proverbs 20 says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. Well, if you've been the victim of an injustice, as perhaps as atrocious as the ones that we've alluded to today, how, do you, how can God tell you that? How, do, how does that bring healing? To say, I will repay evil. Wait, how can God say that? Because justice will be done. Because justice will be done. Martin Luther King said, the arc of the universe is long, but what? It bends towards justice. Justice is certain. Romans chapter 2 says that God will render to each one according to his works because God does not show partiality. God does not and cannot wink at sin. He would be an unjust judge if he ignored it. And God will absolutely and certainly exact a perfect and fair and reasonable justice. He will pour out his justice on sin. And either God pours out his justice on us and we pay the penalty ourselves or he pours out his justice on his son in our place. This incredible act of grace where we're forgiven and we're the recipients of grace. Recipients of justice poured out on his own son. And it's really important as we think about justice, when we think about forgiveness, that forgiveness is absolutely based on justice being meted out, okay? being poured out. In forgiving us, God does not wink at sin. He unleashes justice on his own son, and justice is satisfied, and we are forgiven. Romans 12 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that is only possible when you know how much you've been forgiven. There's a, an incredible example of that from South Africa. After uh, his release, after 27 years from prison, Nelson Mandela was elected president, and he began the harder work 
of trying to heal decades of injustice. One of his very first acts was during his inauguration as president, he actually called up his jailer onto the very same platform to be up there with him. It was an incredible display of forgiveness. And Mandela knew that in other countries where oppressed tribes came into power, there was almost always an inevitable period of bloodshed, of vengeance, as people came on their own and they wanted to get and exact their revenge. And instead, what did Mandela do? Remember, he set up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and he appointed Archbishop Desmond Tutu to head up the commission. And then for two and a half years, South Africans heard report after report after report of atrocities from these hearings. The rules were simple. If a white policeman would confess uh, voluntarily, face his accusers, confess his crime, and fully acknowledge his guilt, he could not be tried or punished for that crime. Now, obviously many grumbled about the, the in, seeming injustice in this of letting criminals go free, but Mandela felt that the country needed healing even more than it needed justice. And one of the most powerful stories was the following. Reverend Make Masango tells of, the, of one hearing where a policeman named Vonderbroek confessed that he and the other officers had shot an 18-year-old boy and burned the body to destroy the evidence. Eight years later, he returned to the same house, seized the boy's father while the wife was forced to watch while the policeman bound her husband to a woodpile poured gasoline over his body and burned him. And the courtroom just grew silent as the woman who lost her son and her husband was given a chance to respond to this white policeman. And the judge asked her, what do you want from Mr. Vanderbrook? And she said three things. She wanted to go to the place where they burned her husband's body and gather up the dust so that she could give him a decent burial. And then secondly, she said, Mr. Vonderbroek took all my family away from me and I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come to the township, it's a ghetto, and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him and he a son to me. And then thirdly, she said, this is also the wish of my husband. So here she's speaking on behalf of her murdered husband. She said, and so I would kindly ask someone to come to my side and lead me across the courtroom so that I can take Mr. Vonderbroek in my arms and embrace him and let him know that he is truly forgiven. That is an incredible sight. As people in the courtroom watched this and the courtroom just spontaneously burst into singing. They started singing Amazing Grace. So it was truly amazing. But Mr. Vonderbroek didn't hear a word. He was so overcome by this display of grace that he fainted. And that's what grace does for us. When we are so overwhelmed by the power of forgiveness over a wretch like me, when we realize that God has poured out his justice on his son, that he didn't spare his son at all to, in order to be able to forgive us, we are overwhelmed by grace. And we are wanting to be givers of grace to other people. May we know that as God has called us to justice, in his compassion, he has shown us mercy. And may Emmanuel and Grace Meridian Hill 
May you and I be so captivated by justice and mercy which come together at the cross that even as we overcome, even as we work for justice, we too overcome evil with good. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a God of justice, perfectly defined and perfectly displayed. And Lord, we pray that we as individuals and communities would be signs of justice, of your justice, that we would faithfully and correctly and accurately point to the God of justice, the God who shows us mercy. May we be overwhelmed by grace as we extend grace to others. And may our whole cities and countries be different for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.